Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poets and poetry. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Martin Espada. My name is Martin Espada. Martin Espada has published almost 20 books as a poet, editor, essayist, and translator. His new collection of poems from Norton is called Vivas to Those Who Have Failed. His many honors include the Shelley Memorial Award, the Robert Creeley Award, the National Hispanic Cultural Center Literary Award, an American Book Award, the Penn Revson Fellowship, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. His book, The Republic of Poetry, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. A former tenant lawyer in Greater Boston's Latino community, Espada is a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We talked to Martin about his poem, Haunt Me, from Vivas to Those Who Have Failed. The poem is an elegy for his father, Frank Espada, who was an activist, a documentary photographer, and a leader of the Puerto Rican community in East New York. I came to writing when I was 15 years old. Uh, and I have to preface that by saying that I was a terrible student. I once failed English in the eighth grade. I was sitting in the back of the room with a bunch of young thugs in the tenth grade, trying not to be seen, and our teacher, Mr. Vileka, came up to us, and he said to us, uh, young thugs, I have an assignment for you. I would like you to reproduce this magazine, and he held up a copy of the New Yorker magazine. We were all New Yorkers, but that was a very different New York. Uh, And he showed us that indeed there were sections and that we should all take a section and uh, replicate this uh, august journal. Uh, Well, we passed it from hand to hand down the hierarchy of thuggery, and I was at the bottom of that food chain, so it came at last to me and the only thing left at the back of the magazine was a poem. And indeed, uh, I was uh, rather upset. Uh, I remember saying, oh man, a poem. But, you know, I didn't want to fail English again. So I sat in the back of the room by the window where it was raining, and I wrote a poem about rain. Uh, I only remember one line, tiny silver hammers pounding the earth to describe rain. Well there was, I created my first metaphor. And uh, I didn't know what a metaphor was. I found out a few weeks later when strutting down the hallway. I made a metaphor. I'm bad. But I learned something that day. I really did. I learned that I love words. I learned that I love banging words into each other and watching them spin around the room and maybe jump out the window with the rain. And from the beginning, I always had something to say with those words. I wrote about family and friends and community uh, and and self, and even justice. I was also surrounded by uh, this uh, ethos of resistance. Uh, I can remember um, being seven years old and uh, my father disappearing when he was arrested um, after the protests at the New York World's Fair in 1964. And he was gone for a good long time and no one told me where he was. I had to conclude in my seven-year-old mind that he was dead. And I would sit there looking at a photograph of him and cry. And one day I was engaged in this little ritual when he walked in the door. 
And I said, I thought you were dead. And he laughed. And then he had to explain to me more or less where he had been. I was seven. That's where I can remember for the first time having some awareness of what was going on with his activism. And then uh, a little while later in my life, um, I went to my first demonstration. It, it was, uh, I was nine. And it happened to be a demonstration for safe streets. Uh, there was a, a short order cook with 10 kids named Agropino Bonillo who was stomped to death um, by junkies who were demanding money of him. And my father, along with some of the local clergy, organized a, a march a demonstration uh, for uh, safe uh, streets and to, to mourn the passing of Agropino Bonillo. And I was there. And, you know, we lit candles along the way, and it rained, and the candles went out, and we lit the candles again, and the rain put them out, and we lit the candles again. And what started out as a demonstration of hundreds grew into a demonstration of thousands as people came out of the buildings um, to join us. And as the night got darker, all you could see were the candles themselves bobbing as they came down the stairs and into the street. You don't forget something like that. My father was uh, an organizer, he was an agitator, and he was, above all, an advocate. Uh, not only documenting conditions, but speaking out against those conditions um, and humanizing the dehumanized. I see myself doing that, or attempting to do that, in uh, not only this book, and Vivas to Those Who Have Failed, but in every book I have ever uh, produced. Leave us to those who have failed. That comes from Whitman, Section 18, Song of Myself. And there are uh, many people who populate the book uh, and fit that category in the conventional sense of failure. Um, but of course, what Whitman is doing to challenge the concept of failure is to essentially say that they have not failed or that they have failed in, in order that we should succeed. My father uh, occupies a central place in uh, this book uh, because he was part of numerous struggles uh, and we can point to them and say, well, they failed, didn't they? Right? So he uh, was um, a community organizer in the East New York section of Brooklyn, where I grew up, uh, a still devastated, blighted community. He was uh, a civil rights uh, activist. Uh, he was a leader, some would say the leader of the Puerto Rican community in New York City uh, during the 1960s and early 70s. And above all, he was a documentary photographer who created something called the Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project, a photo documentary and oral history of the Puerto Rican migration. And I know my father, who was an activist for 60 years, felt towards the end that he had failed. And I tried to convince him otherwise. But as we know, uh, social change is not linear. We uh, advance and we retreat. We gain and then we lose and then we gain back again. And it's easy for someone to take a look at any one piece of that history and say, well, 
you know, you were an activist or you were an advocate or you took photographs or you wrote poems and it didn't go the way you wanted it to go, which is why you have to take the longest possible view, Viva us to those who have failed. And then there's the ultimate failure, which is the failure to continue living, uh, the failure of the heart to keep beating. So uh, the failure by death, the failure of the heart to keep beating is also uh, a preoccupation here. And I am grappling with my father's uh, loss, uh, but also his legacy and the notion that even death is not the ultimate failure, that we continue on in some way. We, as long as I am here, he is here. As long as the poems are here, he is here. As long as the photographs are here, he is here. Uh, and so I'm doing uh, what Whitman uh, directed me to do, which is to challenge the whole idea of what we mean by failed. There's a, a ritual in the poem. And the ritual should be familiar to anyone who's ever lost a parent. And this ritual has to do with sorting through the junk, sifting through the garbage, and wondering, why did he keep that? Why did he want this? Why is this still here? And you begin to think the unthinkable. You're simply going to start throwing things out. And then you come across the treasure. Whatever that treasure might be, of course, it's very personal. It's not a matter of monetary value is a treasure to you. And in this case, the treasure uh, was, to me, um, what we used to call home movies, silent movies. I was uh, stunned at what I found because there, and it's only about six minutes, was footage from 1968, my first visit to the island of Puerto Rico, my first encounter with many of my relatives there, family. So there I was at the age of 11, and there was my father at the age of 38, young again, and he swept into the room, and of course, the moment he did that, uh, all eyes were on him. And what happens simply in the, in the uh, whole movie is that uh, there's uh, a scene where we're all sitting at a table and this food piled up and I'm looking very confused and hot and disoriented, I guess. <laughs> My father, of course, is in his element and he notices me and in a split second, his focus goes right to me. He puts his arm around my shoulder and I can see myself change, just just brighten and, and radiate, as they say in the poem, and sit up and look around and realize there's a world around me. And so all of a sudden I hear the music, all of a sudden I can smell the food. I come back to life because my father, who is dead, mind you, has just put his arm around my shoulder and brought me back to life. After I saw that, I began playing that one little clip, that one little section, over and over again. So the action was that he was putting his arm around me over and over again. And here I am, I'm 59 years old, and I'm replaying this, and the tears are pouring down my face. 
Finally, the dam broke. You know, I was wondering when that was going to happen. And a point of fact, the poem then moves to a place where I contemplate why it was that had not happened before. And it hadn't happened before because I had not permitted myself to think about those moments, to think about the times he put his arm around my shoulder or the times he uh, otherwise uh, expressed affection or gave me attention or encouragement or, uh, you know, any of the things that he, he did, whether it was, uh, you know, giving me a sort of object lesson just by talking in front of me to a third party, which he often did, uh, or whether it was a matter of playing catch, because he was an athlete, I was not. And I realized that I had cut all those scenes out. I had created my own home movie in my head. I had cut out all the scenes where he was good to me. That was grossly unfair. Um, you know, here I was just remembering the arguments, the silences. I was processing his uh, history and mine in a very different way. And ultimately what I was doing was keeping the grief at arm's length, which we do reflexively, most of us. We find ways of keeping the grief out here. But if we're poets, we have to let it in. You have to invite the ghosts in. You have to invite them to sit down at the table. You have to invite them to tell you everything. You have to invite them to haunt you. Because that's what you should do as a poet. You're going to internalize all that. So in turn, you can express it in words and put it on the page and put it in the air. And you may not console yourself. In fact, you probably won't. But you will console others. This poem is called Haunt Me for My Father, Frank Espada. I am the archaeologist. I sift the shards of you, cufflinks, passport photos, a button from the march on Washington with a black hand shaking a white hand, letters in Spanish, your birth certificate from a town high in the mountains. I cup your silence, and the silence melts like ice in a cup. I search for you in two yellow Kodak boxes marked Puerto Rico, Nochebuena, Diciembre, 1968. In the 8-millimeter silence, the espadas gather, elders born before the Spanish-American War, my grandfather on crutches after fracturing his fossil hip, his blind brother on a cane. You greet the elders, and they call you Tato, the name they call you there. Uncles and cousins sing in a chorus of tongues without sound, vibration of guitar strings stilled by an unseen hand, maraca shaking empty of seeds. The camera wobbles from the singers to the television, and the astronauts sending pictures of the moon back to Earth. Down by the river, women still pound laundry on the rocks. I... M11 again, a boy from the faraway city of ice that felled my grandfather, startled after the blind man with the cane stroked my face with his hand dry as straw, crying out, Bendito. At the table, I hear only the silence that rises like the river in my big ears. 
You sit next to me, clowning for the camera, tugging the lapels on your jacket, slicking back your black hair, brown skin darker from days in the sun. You slide your arm around my shoulder, your good right arm, your pitching arm, and my moon face radiates, and the mountain song of my uncles and cousins plays in my head. Watching you, now, my face stings as it stung when my blind great-uncle brushed my cheekbones searching for his own face. When you died, Tato, I took a razor to the movie looping in my head, cutting the scenes where you curled an arm around my shoulder all the times you would squeeze the silence out of me so I could hear the cries and songs again. When you died... I heard only the silences between us, the shouts belling the air before the phone went dead, all the words melting like ice in a cup. That way I could set my jaw and take my mother's hand at the mortuary, greet the elders in my suit and tie at the memorial, say all the right words. Yet my face stings at last. I rewind and watch your arm drape across my shoulder, over and over. A year ago, you pressed a Kodak slide of my grandfather into my hand and said, Next time, stay longer. Now, in the silence that is never silent, I push the chair away from the table and say to you, Sit down. Tell me everything. Haunt me. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all our old episodes. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us on iTunes or writing a short review. It really helps get the word out about the podcast.